just happy to be here. What is up, beautiful people of the world? My name is Exact Change, and I'm happy to be here today with my guest, Lucretia Hill. Hi. Hello. And how are you doing today? I'm doing really good today. It's a good day. Me too, even though it's gloomy, and we were just talking about how uh, frosty it still is, because it was like starting off as a morning thing, and you get the frost, and then you're like, it'd be sunny and nice, and now it's like one o'clock, and we're still like... All right. You were like, this is how it's going to be till March. So yeah, I've, like, oh. I've just accepted winter at this point. <laughs> it's here. It's well, happening. Well, uh, we've we've rescheduled this already like a couple times. I'm we super have. excited to, to get you on now and to talk about what you do. Uh, you do multiple things. And um, I don't know if a lot of my audience knows anything about you. So <laughs> I'm super excited to introduce them to you. So why don't you just take a second and just kind of, you know, introduce yourself and let us know what you do. Okay. Um, so currently I have my own consulting business. I call it LMH Consulting for now. Okay. Um, although I started my career in nonprofit and philanthropy, but made the change in 2015 into cannabis. Mm. Um, although I, I get to say that I don't have many legacy points, but cannabis happens to be one of those because my mother and my uncle grew my whole life. So really? cannabis was always kind of in our home. It's, <laughs> it was never not in our home. Um, and so cannabis, um, in 2015, I was working for Empire Health Foundation and spending most of my time kind of observing poverty and social systems that create poverty. Um, I became very interested in the other side of being a job creator. And for me, um, cannabis seemed like the natural place to be. A, I love weed. Yeah. Like I really love weed. Yeah. Okay. So that helps. <laughs> that helps. Yeah. And then um, my mother had a, had had a, a farm and had been in the medical business for a while and mm. had a, had a storefront at the Eastern Washington cannabis market, which was the only market style cannabis stores um, during the medical time that Eastern Washington had. Was that here in Spokane? Yeah, it was here in Spokane over on like I think it was second over by the staples over there. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was wow. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. Cause I didn't, so I didn't really know anything about like cannabis as far as like medical or anything like that, like before it was legal, like recreationally. And I know that it was, there was a big community, but it was just like, I wasn't a medical patient. So I was just kind of like shunned out of this thing. And I've always been so interested in knowing more about it. Um, I always hear the weed was is much better. <laughs> That's what people say. You no, know, it was you got the freshness, so that was good. Um, I was super naive too when I went. I didn't even know what an eighth weighed. Okay. So, okay. Because when I got weed, I would just go to my mom's house and get a mason jar. So I didn't. Yeah, you're like, oh, an eighth. What's a? <laughs> so I had a cheat sheet that like how many ounces were in a pound and and so when I went there, I was I didn't I thought that it was just a place where people went to get cheap weed i had no it was the best education in cannabis I wow could ever because gotten. yeah you were already just stocked up yeah yeah <laughs> and weed wasn't the business that i was in i was doing philanthropy and nonprofit work mm -hmm. so i was with boys and girls club for seven years wow um, when i graduated from eastern washington university i wanted real social service experience so i moved down to vegas and oh, got wow. hired by the clubs there and i love boys and girls clubs i love working with kids mm -hmm. plus i think if you're a secret stoner like it's the perfect job yeah because you could like be a kid <laughs> in a way and just gonna like have fun and like just play around and... yeah and i really learned about management like that's kind of been and like my career focus has been bringing people together to kind of reach objectives. So that's where I got to kind of do it first. So after wow. I um, was in nonprofit work and in Vegas for a while, I came home and um, so you grew up here. I did. I grew up here. I'm a I'm a 
third generation Hilliardite. I oh, like a Hilliardite. Yeah, I am. North hard- side. No, I, yeah, I'm hardcore Hilliardite. <laughs> so when did you, uh, when did you, what, like what really brought your interest into philanthropy and just like helping people? Was it? I think it was growing up in Hilliard. Like I think when you grow up in Hilliard, you grow up with a lot of kids who have to deal with a lot of adult things, especially in the 80s and the 90s. You know, most of my friends' parents were either selling crack, growing pot, or doing those things. Yeah, And wow. so I think you create this, like, youth community amongst each other where you kind of help each other out. Like, many of my friends had lived with me at some point, mm-hmm. or, you know, I had the most stable home mm-hmm. compared to some of my friends. So I think, like, that's where this, like, I think a need for justice came from, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, going to Rogers High School and seeing that you have used textbooks from Ferris, you're obviously realizing like you're not getting a fair education. Yeah. And you're seeing it on like a, like on a peer level too, uh for somebody that you can relate to directly and just like seeing that you could, that you're in a position to help people, like giving them a place to stay and stuff like that. Right. And not only that, like there's a lot of people who are smart outside of a traditional system. And I think Hilliard is a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. Like it's a lot of people who find other ways to be resourceful. And so I was traditionally book smart. So that was my hustle. Mm -hmm. I think we all, you know, if you grow up in that environment, everybody has something. So I was Mm -hmm. really good at being smart. Um, and so that's what I did where mm-hmm. other people were really good at selling things or the hustle. Growing. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of what I grew up with. But it, I think it did give me this sense of like, why don't I have the same resources or opportunities that people from different neighborhoods have? Mm-hmm. And there's tons of studies out there. So as I was in philanthropy and doing that type of work, if you look at health related data based on socioeconomic levels, mm-hmm. you learn really quickly that people on the South Hill live a much healthier life than people in the 99207 zip code. And to me, and you're not even, it's not, it's not that far, that far away, away, but it's yeah. a vastly different health experience. And that's and I crazy. Say, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's kind of, I think I always say growing up in Hilbert definitely gave me the sense of like justice and wanting to understand these systems that are in place and mm-hmm. make it really easy for some people to be successful, even when the odds are against them mm-hmm. and for other people, not so easy. I've always said like a family in Hilliard who struggles with addiction has so many more challenges than a person on the South Hill who suffers from addiction because they do too. Yeah, it's it's really it's wild how in such a small city you you can have such a vast difference. In Hilliard, I I've always known ever since I moved here that Hilliard kind of had a reputation uh, for struggling more, and the South Hills always had a reputation for kind of being more upper class and, right. and, and stuff like that. So um, I think that's really cool that you can kind of see like where you can help people and where you're seeing that people are just not getting a fair shot. That's, I mean, it's just really all perspective, right? And mm-hmm. and being in that situation. And I talk to a lot of people who just can't, they have a hard time uh, putting themselves in other people's shoes. Right. And they just kind of, they just know like what they're, what they've lived. And I really respect people who can kind of take themselves out of their own personal life and really kind of be able to put themselves in somebody else's shoes and saying, Oh, well the reason that they're doing this or that they are this way or because of X, Y, Z, they grew up like this or, and then like you said, there's people have different skills and, uh, it's not always book smarts. Like right. every, even if you went to school, like right. people are like, Oh God, this sucks. And some people are like, dude, I fucking love learning. I love math. I love coming here. And some people are just like, like me, I just couldn't even for a lot of subjects. I was just like, Oh, 
God, kill me, <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, but then I had so many friends who were just, they were just loved it. They were just mm-hmm. so good at it. And yeah. So I think that you, it's good to have appreciation for all types of people who, you know, learn differently and have different skills and, and stuff like that. That's really cool. Well, I think even working with kids, like you get to see people and they're, most, I think, authentic form before they have anyone telling them what they're good at. You naturally True. get to see what they're good at. Mm-hmm. And I think that too often we force people to be something they're not because we created a system that says you have to be this to be successful. The system is weird. It's fucked. Like even just like <laughs> the uh, like the school system and what, you know, when they talk about, because I never even really thought about the things like, you know, one teacher teaching 30 kids and how that's difficult. I'm just like, oh, well, that's how it was. And what do you mean? You just teach it. Everybody listens. You know, it's simple. But when you, you know, when you learn that every kid learns differently and some want, some needs hands on and special attention, some are good in class, some you can just give them a book and they can just learn. It's like every person is so different that trying to fit one like curriculum for everybody. And have you ever met a teacher outside of like, they're a fucking hot mess. Like yeah. I know lots of teachers. I always they, thought they had it all together. <laughs> no, too, teachers are like they party really hard. Like they, they are not. I and they had come with their own bias. Like if you look at yeah. the curriculum of a teacher, they really don't learn how to necessarily understand a human. They understand how to create and teach a curriculum. Um, and I think the human component of it some, sometimes gets missed. Which is why teachers should get paid more money. And, oh, yeah. And they should be able to, you know, there should be some, like, in that degree of learning how to teach, there should definitely be more, like, psychology, human psychology in that. So yeah. that way they can understand. Because, I mean, teachers deal with some crazy shit. Insanity. Like, mm-hmm. kids and their families are crazy. I And you bring up my bachelor's was in psychology, mm-hmm. but not, I always have to, not counseling, but research. Okay. Um, so when I was in college, I worked at an after-school program um, at Gary Middle School. And um, so I, I went to those schools, and then I worked there, too. So that I wanted to be a teacher at first, and then I hung out around teachers, and mm-hmm. I was like... Not that there aren't amazing teachers, but mm-hmm. the ones that I encountered, I felt like they were really disconnected to the community that they served. And mm-hmm. I knew these kids personally because I grew up in the community. So a lot of them were cousins and little little brothers and sisters and friends. Yeah. So I had a different perspective on what challenges they were experiencing. Mm-hmm. And it was always really interesting how out of touch they were from what these kids were doing dealing with on a regular and I wonder I always wonder how much pay has to do with that and how much like it just being a job and them not being so invested but them like dude I got my own life and I'm trying to I want to try to do good but it's just like you know I'm sure that there's that you're gonna you're gonna perform and you're gonna care about as much as you know you're getting paid I know that that in, in this country especially that is like you know, if you're not getting paid enough, you're kind of like, uh, you know, I'm going to do this much. And, you know, why would I invest more time? And then there's the people that really care. That's why you're saying there, there are some teachers who really just care. Yeah. And we don't create enough space for those people to show up and praise them enough. And, yeah, like, and you know, they need to feel. Them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and pay them and physically pay them because. And give them some liberty. I, I think the system has become so like. It's more about the system than serving the young people that show up every day to 
engage in the system and they're the ones who are actually experiencing it Mm -hmm. um so like i was saying about psychology like psychology saved my life because when i went to the inner cities of las vegas um I, you know, groping in Hilliard, I was like, I know poverty, like I got this. Mm-hmm. And then I showed up in Vegas and I was like, oh no, this is a whole level of poverty that I, Northwest poverty is different. Like just more perspective. It's That's just crazy. vastly different. And so when I got there, I was like, oh man. And so the first thing I started implementing when kids would misbehave was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And in his he has a theory that if you don't have basic needs met, like food and mm-hmm. care and all these things, yeah. then you can't learn. And so, like, when kids were having a bad day, I started asking, you know, well, what happened last night at home or are you hungry? Mm-hmm. Those two questions usually got me my answer. And usually it was, you know, my electricity was shut off. Mom got picked up and is back in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Like, it was all these, like, oh, okay, well, if I were you, I'd have a really shitty next day, too. Yeah. So yeah. It, was the, it was that question that really... I think, and it also was a catalyst of how it changed how I manage people because I really hated being a manager. Like I didn't, it felt very authoritarian. Yeah, like you're just telling people what to do. You weren't helping. It didn't feel like helping. Yeah, it felt bossy, which I do like to be bossy, but Mm -hmm. in a helpful way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But then I started looking, I started really researching more coaching. And so that's kind of how my career path went towards more coaching people and working with kids and adults and a lot of times the adults I worked with were fresh out of college so we're young adults Mm -hmm. and so for me to be able to meet grant goals or organizational goals it really became and because those goals aren't just numbers in terms of financial reward Mm -hmm. they're really human numbers like how many kids got A's and B's on their math and reading Mm -hmm. based on the time they've spent in the boys and girls club and so um that's how I started to really get into managing people and getting people together to reach a goal, which is kind of more related to the consulting business I have, which is coaching and then helping companies identify their processes so they mm-hmm. know how to create training programs. So that's kind of where it all started. Right. Boys and Girls Club. Yeah. And then not only being here, but then going somewhere completely different mm-hmm. where you could experience a whole new level of, and it's not, it's really just like a, it's just different. It's People so were dealing with different <laughs> issues. Totally different. I remember the first, the thing I heard first was this little girl, she was singing a nursery rhyme and it was, I don't want to go to Mexico no more, more, more. There's a big fat policeman at the door, door, door. And my jaw just like drops like, did this little girl just sing this? <laughs> and I was just so like, wow. this is, and this was in, Gosh, 2008, seven. I don't think a lot of people can really, you know, think about like they take for granted that thought process of fucking maybe getting shipped off to somewhere that you're like, what the fuck? You know, like this is my home here and you need to go home. You need to go here. Like, what the fuck? Like a lot of us don't even know what that's like. No, I couldn't. And that was the biggest culture shock for me. The Boys and Girls Club I worked at there was, um, what was it? 60... 60% Latino and Hispanic, and the rest was African-American. And so that was my first exposure to um, Latino and Hispanic culture. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very eye-opening in terms of the family dynamics and and what how hard they were trying to work to mm-hmm. create something different and better for their kids. And mm-hmm. how awful... <laughs> 
for us not have a pathway to citizenship for them is because it creates honestly the kids become victims and and when kids don't have an outlet to be able to tell somebody that they're being hurt mm-hmm. or that they need help mm-hmm. then that creates even more issues i think for any community anybody yeah mm-hmm. so anybody it was definitely an eye-opening experience especially a cultural one when it came to latino and hispanic families so how long were you there i was there for almost four years or four, oh, wow. yeah, almost five years five years wow yeah vegas was I missed home. Like, I love the Northwest. So I definitely, like, I would see people with Northwest plates and, like, approach them. Like, you're like oh, hey, you're from Oregon. We have a piece <laughs> together. I know that place. Um, I, but I found that Vegas was pretty much a small town. Like, everybody sees the strips. They think, like, you don't ever go to the strip. You just feel like it's going to be super touristy everywhere you go. But this, it's so much bigger than just that one little piece. Yeah. Well, and it freaked me out, too, because I had kids. Um, so I was, I, you know, I work with a lot of girls and we were in a girls group and they were sharing like what they're excited for. Mm-hmm. And this one girl who was a junior, she's like, I'm super excited. It's prom and my after hours party is at the Palms. And I totally had that realization like, oh shit, if you raise kids here, like they party way different. Like they're way not different. just like sneaking down to Riverside to cruise or like sneaking out and running through a field. Like I think I would rather my kids like trying to get alcohol poisoning in a field than running through the palms. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, there's a lot of, you can definitely probably elevate to like adult shit real quick, real quick in Vegas. Oh yeah. Cause all your friends are valet. So like, you know, you're 18 years old and you have a valet job and you make like, that's so crazy. (laughs) Probably so much more cocaine there. Just keep, yeah, just, hey, yeah, it's like we're all about the weed here because I remember in, in uh, Las Vegas, wasn't it? They were fucking like throwing people in prison for weed, like yeah, it, not was too a, long ago. Yeah, when I oh, that was, I almost came home. So when I got down there, I couldn't find weed, and you know, I didn't know that I was from like the sacred cornucopia of weed. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> you're there, you just I, don't. I didn't know. Yeah, and so like my first like. My husband at the time, I was lucky, was in the waiting industry. So, you know, there was a dish boy there somewhere to get weed from. Mm. But even then, when I saw the weed, I was like, what the fuck is this? I'm going home. No choices. (laughs) No choices. It was really hard to find, like, a stable connect. And then, you know, working for Boys and Girls Clubs, you're not really supposed to smoke weed. So I actually did get random drug tests there. So I had to, like, I had it all planned out. I always made sure that I never went to our administration building before the head shops open so in case i needed to get synthetic urine wow so. <laughs> no it, it's really it uh, <laughs> it's kind of a weird the whole the whole like drug test thing and i mean there's a huge hypocrisy around cannabis and like legalization and and uh, miseducation it just seems so crazy to me like i just saw that uh Joe Biden said, you know, like he wouldn't legalize it because there's not enough evidence. I it, hate Joe Biden. <laughs> it's the worst. Like, it's like, oh, my God. But, it, you know, I mean, it's crazy to me because there's not enough research. But it's the double line. But, but you it's can bullshit. but you can smoke cigarettes. <laughs> Plenty of research. It kills you. But, but totally please. fine. Alcohol is the same way. There's tons of pharmaceuticals that have shown awful side effects. Yeah, it'll. That way, I always felt like that was my because I was 
closeted. I couldn't tell people, which definitely prevented me from having friends. Like I definitely hated hanging out with work people because yeah, you had to be somebody different. You couldn't be yourself. You couldn't yeah, just couldn't be like, Hey, I just love weed and this is who I am. And this is like, you and, had, um, yeah. And I don't want to go have a drink after work. I want to roast a bull after work. Yeah. It's just a different, <laughs> I'm a, like, I've just, and it doesn't mean we can't be friends. It just means that God, I, I can't, relax while you're relaxing and i don't relax i kind of have to suffer suffer because y'all out drinking and i just want to smoke so bad so i gotta sneak off and hit my dirt weed that i just got from fucking joey the bus boy yeah that was my life it sucked god i hated not having and then we moved to oregon for a short time and we didn't and we were in like when I was recruited for the boys and girls clubs I worked for in Oregon, I heard small town and I thought, oh, like Spokane, like Spokane small town. But no, it was Lebanon and Sweet Home Oregon, which was like. Oh, I'm familiar. Oh, it was so small. I was actually just there. You were? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, my cousin got married and that's where they're from, a sweet home. Oh. So I was just there. Are they cousins? No. no, no, I don't think so. I hope not. Well, I did. I asked the social because everyone in Sweet Homes related. And so I finally asked one of the social service ladies I worked with in Lebanon. I was like, so like. Do cousins, you know, marry there? She's like, oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Who would have thought in the Northwest? I thought that was a Southern thing. Well, if you spent any time in Lebanon and Sweet Home, it can feel Southern. Mm-hmm. Just So it's just really small. It's See, very sweetest people I ever met in all of my life, but very small and different. I mean, people, I just... It's like the judgy, the judginess that you feel when you're like in a small town and like people are like, oh, who, what's that? Tr- who's that? Oh, they got it. You know, and people are just talking and they're like, they're just paying attention to what you do. There's not a lot going on. Oh, n- nothing going. I mean, it, it was weird. I, hate I don't it. like I only it. lasted a year. But then the big city is <laughs> like the same. The big, I hate the big city too for just like the disconnection and people right. walk right past people that, and they just don't treat them like people. I think Spokane, like I, Spokane's kind of the best size. Like oh, it's, it's to- totally. I totally. think I hope people don't find out about Spokane because I do think it's like a secret gem. Like no traffic, amazing outdoor mm-hmm. stuff. Beautiful Great river, yeah. just like the mountains right there. Yeah, we have everything it's except perfect. for like a club. We don't really have a club. I think that's oh. the. We could probably use a club here. We could. You we know, could use a decent club. Like just a club where people could like dance because like yeah, really not. people are just pressing up against each other at Lucky's <laughs> and like that's about or Barachos. Like that's like pretty much what we're getting. It would be nice to just have like a Seattle-esque club. It would that had space. Like mm-hmm. I hate when I see a line in Spokane, it's very disheartening. Yeah. And especially at nine, like I. Oh, that's the place to dance. And, and you know. That's what we have right now. It is. And. Being in Spokane and standing in line in front of a gay bar is probably some serious progress for mm-hmm. Spokane, but mm-hmm. it's still a little fresh. <laughs> <laughs> we could still All use more. Breeders here. <laughs> we got a lot of, we're starting to get some more cool stuff. Like I, I was just talking to somebody. I, I'd really like like a Dave and Busters because mm. I'd love to just be able to go somewhere where you can just kind of like do Play adult games. video games. Yeah, with and, other adults and dreams. Yes. Chuck E. Cheese does that, but it gets weird. Well, I mean, and, it, and it's like when there's a ton of kids everywhere. There's too many kids. Then you're just like, oh, I'm like getting you know you're drinking around kids that aren't yours oh. and you know i might knee a kid or something on accident it's just not safe i have several nieces and nephews and when i worked for the boys and girls club here going to chuck e cheese was like the worst thing ever especially on a saturday because i couldn't i would know especially working at the clubs because spokane's the size of town i would know like 
all the children there. Yeah. <laughs> so I couldn't drink beer or look too high. Yeah. <laughs> so it's always like you're just on your toes. Yeah. You just kept on your toes. Kids are the, everywhere you go. Like in Vegas, I remember I'd walk around there all the time and never hear or see anybody here especially working for the clubs here. I mean, I could be at Walgreens and be like, hey, my son didn't get to sign up. I'm like, I don't even work in that department. Like, That's crazy. <laughs> it's yeah, just small enough. You can't enough. get away. <laughs> yeah. It's just small enough to where, you know, that's, that's Spokane too. It's like big enough to where you can kind of get away and not, you know, it's not like everybody knows everybody. But if you go downtown, you're probably going to run into some people for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. You know? And people are, I think it's like, what, a two degrees of separation. Like, you could, in Spokane, you mm -hmm. can get to people pretty quickly. Yeah, everything is like 15 minutes away, no matter where you go. That's so nice. Yeah, it is nice. I love locals, too, when they get pissed, if it takes longer than 15 minutes to get somewhere. Oh, when yeah. They act like, the valley is, like, three states over. Yeah, it was like, uh, I, I was talking about going somewhere, like, up north, uh, to like Wandamere and my buddy was like oh dude that's way too far I was like it's like 12 minutes like what do you mean or 13 minutes or something like that it is but then you know you got to get some perspective like I went and lived in Jersey for a little while Ooh, fun. and you're just like oh my god like it was it was, was intense. It, it was fun but yeah exactly it was a lot of people jammed together, so a lot more of that kind of high-stress driving and, you know, the lines and uptight people. But it was what I really liked about it was that you could get places really quick. So it's like, oh, if I wanted to go to Philadelphia, it's like, oh, that's 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Oh, you want to go to New York? Okay, that's like, you know, an hour. Oh, you want – you know, over here, it's like anywhere you want to go is like – you know, if you want to go to Boise, that's like seven hours. <laughs> you want to go to Seattle, that's like five hours. It's the opposite of metropolitan. <laughs> yep. But that's kind of the diamond in the rough of this whole place, you it know? Is. And everybody is figuring out about it. I think all the people from California are kind of like, what's this Spokane like, place? I can buy a house. I can buy a house there. <laughs> yeah. For, and, and I mean, to have beautiful scenery all four seasons and be able to get a house for the price that you can get here, I totally get it. Yeah. My sister, she's. She's an attorney and she bought a house here and still worked in Southern California. Wow. Just because it was it's just more such... cost effective for her to work here or to live here and work there. Really? Yeah. So it just has to like fly around yeah, a lot. Just and... flying every couple months. Go to if she has trial or whatever. But for the most part, yeah, when she did that, it was. It, it definitely was more cost effective and she could buy a home. She's like, wow. I'd never be able to. And she's an attorney. And she wow. still couldn't afford to buy a house in Southern California. Yeah, and I heard Cal Southern California is just, it's just wild. It's crazy how, like, the, it. the most beautiful places on earth are just so crazy because so many people are there. Like, L.A., you know, like, Florida, like, like any of these places where you would be like, oh, that's gorgeous. Like, I'm going to live there. It's like, oh, mm. fuck. Like, and I, I disagree. I think Southern California is ugly. <laughs> so, it but, always has that, like, weird haze. Like, you never see a clear sky. Because it's just like, I've like never been there before. Oh, you haven't? No, never. It's the worst. Like, people are awful. I've heard. They're just awful. I've like, heard, gross yeah. awful. And like, just not nice. Aggressive. Like, and... I've been called aggressive, but it's a different kind of aggression. Like it's ignorant aggression. I you're kind know. of, maybe I feel like there's obviously probably something in there where you're like built by the place you live in. Right. Like, so when you're in this place, it's like dog eat dog. Like everybody's this way. Oh yeah. My and sister you become... was totally like she is, it took her like two years to unwind after she left there. Really? Yeah. And she was there. She went to law school there and then lived there for I think 11 years. Wow. And she's, yeah, it took her at least two years back before I was like, you can 
You can no, just chill. Up here, it's so <laughs> unbelievably chill here. It is. Like, people are not really tripping. And when I see somebody that's, like, tripping or, like, like I'm, like, high-strung, I'm like, like whoa. dude, whoa, are you, you know, I'm like, <laughs> something's happened? really going on in this person's day because. This is a lot. Because we're not really, yeah, it takes, you know, there's hardly, traffic is not traffic here. Mm-mm. You know, so. The cost of living is fairly reasonable. Fairly high minimum wage. There's some, and there's Fairly. jobs. Yeah, and there's jobs here. Mm-hmm. Um, an array of jobs too. It has a pretty good job market. Not education. a good place to be homeless, though. No, it's fucking cold. It is hella cold, and but I don't know. So when I was with um, Empire Health Foundation, that's the philanthropy, philanthropic organization I was with before I went into cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, my purview was homelessness, and so. It was my job. Um, I think I had about $250,000 that I granted out. Mm. And then I had about a $250,000 that I could leverage to bring in federal dollars. So I would okay. work with charities like Catholic Charities and Volunteers mm-hmm. of America to bring them together to go after large federal dollars. Oh, okay. Um, and then my purview specifically was homelessness. And so what I found out about homelessness, especially in Spokane, is that a majority, I think over two thirds of the population in Spokane who are homeless were either in foster care or they are veterans, Mm. which obviously tells you it's a systemic issue. It's not just people who are lazy or can't find work. Most of them are really, really sick. Which is like exactly what some people just peg the problem as. They want to simplify it into just, oh yeah, they're just fucking lazy people that don't want jobs. Yeah, they don't want to work. Most of them can't. I mean, the stories that I ran across a lot of the people, you know, I don't like, they're not capable of being functional members of society. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've ever, I, I don't want to disclose. So there's this one homeless person who's around Spokane a lot and he lost his whole family in a car accident wow. and he was the lonely survivor and he lost his two daughters and his wife and he just never recovered. Yeah. So that was like, so he, I mean, he wasn't homeless. He had a family. He, he had was a family. A, he had everything. But and then just fucking lost the will to. To main, yeah. I, I mean, I can try to imagine that and like what that would be like and, and just having your family and then they're just, you're alone and trying to, I mean, I think ment- a lot of people don't take into account mental health. They see physical health. Oh, the heart, uh, you know, the gut. Oh, you know, just physical thing. But, you know, what's going on in the head, a lot of, a lot of account of what kind of mental issues and like how much of a struggle that it can be to try to balance you and you can see there's a correlation between uh, you know the not that the sanitariums or the loony bins Mm -hmm. (laughs) they like to call them back then um were good because they were very abusive but at the same time you can correlate the shutting down of these facilities and an increase of people living on the streets Mm -hmm. because they have to go somewhere. They I, do, yeah. I do think that, you know, us as citizens do have a responsibility for those who may not be capable of taking care of themselves. Well, and I think that I think that we need to rehabilitate people and we need more programs like that. I mean, even people that go to jail or people right. that go to prison or people, you know, I mean, some of those people are just like homeless people that were just like, it's fucking cold out here. And, you know, and then now they're in jail or they're, you know, and it's just like a vicious cycle. And they're, I, I mean... I just feel like there should be some rehabilitation rather than just like caging people up and just like being like, all right, you're, this is punishment. You're in trouble. You know, like let's learn something here and try to help people. Um, a lot of times people will, uh, they won't, 
they they won't be able to get to where they want to be mentally because they just need some help. Right. You know what I mean? Like they just need some help and it's just like life is all about who you're around, who you're surrounding yourself with. And if you're surrounding yourself with people that are just doing, you know, shitty stuff and being, you know, shitty people and those people all get around each other, then you're just going to be caught in this like vicious cycle. But if you get around people that genuinely care and want to help you and like are positive and like push you in the right direction, it's amazing to see how much progress somebody can make from becoming from being homeless or just having no will to want to do better to just being motivated and having friends and having a normal life. And I feel like a lot of those people just want a normal life. Well, and I think we have to be okay with people are only going to progress so far. Some people are never going to be able to maintain themselves again. Mm -hmm. That's just, and that's okay. Like, I don't know. I think we put so much emphasis on this ideal that we have to be, I don't know, I'm constantly working or generating revenue in Mm -hmm. some way, which I totally, I love to work. And Mm -hmm. obviously I create jobs where all I do is think about working environments. Mm -hmm. Um, I get a lot of out of working, but does not a community get a lot from the person who might maintain a community garden? Does a community not get a lot from the the woman who might just stay home and visit with the elderly people on Mm -hmm. the block? Like I think what we see in terms of value, I like I've, um, I've said a lot in terms of capitalists, like cap- our current form of capitalism is boring. Like mm-hmm. if our only bottom line is the bottom line, like what are we really doing? It's yeah. kind of, it's kind of counterintuitive to what makes a healthy, happy person. It's all measured in your ability to genu- uh, generate money. Right. And, and like, that's, that's where your value is based. There's not any value for somebody who stays at home and takes care of the kids and stuff like that. Like in society's eyes, it's. You know, like if there was a stay at home dad, you're just like, that dude's a fucking loser. That guy's like at home. Like, dude, get a job. Like that's, I, that's I what people a, say. You're I like, had Fuck. a stay at home husband and I loved it. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of value there. No, honestly, I would tell you that I think men make better stay at home parents. I think women, if that's what you choose to do. But I think sometimes women get really caught up because you're so connected to your child like almost get too you need to be involved. out like get out yeah like, you, like they become too a mesh but i think when you're wow that's a dad <laughs> i don't know i you know i was lucky enough and i know the benefit of being a woman who's pursuing a career and having a stay-at-home dad like you know if there were conferences to go to or traveling opportunities like i could take advantage of them because i had someone at home caring for my children. Mm -hmm. And so many men get that opportunity. You know, they get to go pursue their career because there's someone home. And I can tell you that being a married person in a professional world definitely opens more doors for you than being a single person. Mm -hmm. And being a person that has someone at home to maintain those children, Mm -hmm. allow that person who's out working to take advantage of opportunities. You know, I can go drink, go grab drinks with my boss. I can go golfing for eight hours on a Saturday. Those things open doors and make connections. And if you're not able to do that because you're juggling childcare, Mm -hmm. then you're not going to get those opportunities. Especially (laughs) in those like dual income households where you have, you know, it's like when I grew up, it was just both parents worked. So it was like, I just come home and like, nobody's there. Right. And it's just like, or you go to the boys and girls club. Like. <laughs> and you know, I did find that like, when you, you know, you got to keep your kids, like you got to keep them busy. You got to keep right. them like doing things. And I saw dads, um, 
who were like my the uh, family that lived across the street. They were all homeschooled and like really involved in the church. And their dad was like um, always spending time with them and jumping on the trampoline with them, shooting hoops and playing video games, like doing all this stuff. And I saw the importance of like having that structure and having like your, I mean, having both parents obviously is, is a big deal too, you know, uh, divorce and, and all those things play into how a child develops. It's crazy. I I mean, obviously me and my ex were ex-husband were divorced now, but Mm -hmm. he, he's a much, I mean, we joke about it, but he's a much better father than I am a mother. I am very focused on my career and I have been most of our son's life. And Mm -hmm. that's, it has taken precedent sometimes over mm-hmm. parenting, but I was able to do that because he has a dad who's very diligent mm-hmm. and they have a relationship that I don't see with a lot of dads and sons. I mean, they have inside jokes about me. Mm-hmm. They like, <laughs> they have like their own thing. And with us being divorced, like I see a human who's comfortable in his dad's space as comfortable as his mom's space. Which is so important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we still show up together. We still will sit by each other at events. We definitely put him first, but... Um, so you guys get along. Yeah, we the, get along, but yeah. I will always say, like, stay at more, more... We should have a, we should have communities where staying at home doesn't bankrupt a family. And that yeah. one parent, if that's what they want to do, they should... The community should support that. Well, I think that um, there's, like, a lot of value in homeschooling, too. If you can do it, like seeing, like being able to control that curriculum and being able to kind of, I mean, I, I definitely think because from a social aspect, kids going to school is, is a big deal, but I can see from a parent's perspective of wanting to teach your kids the things that they're really going to use in the future. Um, and what's crazy is it's like, uh, they they say that kids that are in school now are, are gonna they're gonna have jobs that don't even exist right now right so it's like how do you even there's a lot of you know how do you even prepare for that so i mean i think back at school and how many classes i took that were just a fucking waste of time i'm like why did i even i don't need any of that information i didn't retain any of a lot of that information you know what you guys were really just training me to be somewhere for eight hours a day to do what i'm told to take a 30 minute break to You know what I mean? And this is where I push back on homeschooling because I think if more of those homeschool parents engaged in their public... I'm a huge advocate for public education. I think it should be totally changed. I think that the current system is flawed. Mm -hmm. I think it's racist and sexist and volatile, and Mm -hmm. I don't think it supports kids. At the same time, I believe that parents need to engage in their public school system because then too many kids like me whose parents weren't involved Mm -hmm. would fall through the cracks and like I always see it like it's really important that my son sit next to that kid who needs him sitting next to him yeah and also it gives your kids an opportunity to really live out the values that you're instilling in them like that's great that I can keep my son home and just you know, let him know that we live in a racist, sexist, colonialist system and he has to fight it. Mm -hmm. But until I put him in those systems so he can observe them and see them in action and understand how he can engage in it, then how am I helping or how do I make it beneficial for everybody? I mean, you're right. So I I do push back on homeschooling a lot. Like, I think it's great if you want to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that you do a disservice to your community by not putting your kids in public schools and not being that parent that shows up to advocate for all those kids who whose parents aren't advocating for them. That's true because there's a lot of a lot of 
I know people that it was just like, go to school if you want. Like there, there was a lot of that. And I was like, you know, I went to oh, public school. Oh, my mom school. would pay me to stay home and hang out with her. Really? <laughs> yeah. But I grew up in a very like not traditional home. So. <laughs> I mean, and when I was a kid, that was the cool home. I was like, damn. No, that's I, why I, I think that's why me and my sister went to college. Like we couldn't rebel. Like we couldn't be as bad. Our mom's name is Terry. We couldn't be as bad as Terry. Because so. you were just allowed <laughs> to do things. We, yeah, we definitely had a lot of, well. So you still wanted to rebel. To a point, like she definitely kept us close, but um, we were allowed to know a lot of things. Like by the time I was in high school, I knew about credit card fraud. I knew how to open a call girl service. I knew how to. Um, I knew. <laughs> I knew about selling crack. I did know. About so you, that. I mean, like a lot of these things served you well because you were taught thing like would you say like things that like real life things that you could learn early on and you didn't have to be like naive to these things like in the future when you're you know learning them when you're 27 it's no. like yeah my mom kept like I, I i always say that her saving grace um was that she was super honest like you know when i asked where babies came from it was they come out of your crotch lucretia see because my like <laughs> my, no. my parents were such bullshitters like they were t- t- like they would just bullshit like everything he can't know that oh he can't he can't hear that word like i remember i got a i've said this on the podcast before but i've got a uh i got like a an edited cd like an edited limp biscuit cd and my mom was like no you can't have that i'm like it's edited. They're like, yeah, but you know what they're saying. I'm like, I know what they're saying. That's what I'm saying. Like, can I, she's like, no, that's, you know, and, um, you know, seeing how some of those methods that were like older methods and just like sheltering your kids from everything and how that was so ineffective in a lot of ways and how I, how I saw it be effective in some ways and how I saw it be just like your, your kids can, or your parents can kind of be your enemy if they're not being honest with you. Especially at a certain age. I definitely, like, my mom had a lot of bad parenting techniques, but honesty was the one that I think served her well. (laughs) And so, yeah, she was brutally, I knew lots of things long before I probably... I feel like there's a lot more respect there, too, you know? Especially when you're older and you're just like, thank you for just, you know, just being honest with me about things. And because it helps you become a better adult, really. Well, and I think as a young woman growing up in the environment that I could have grown up in, Mm -hmm. you know, I, you know, you mentioned too about like the outside influences. Like there are moments in my upbringing where I look back and I was like, damn, I got lucky. Like dodged a bullet. I dodged a couple. We, in fact, um, we have a cousin who passed away of cancer and, um, I flew and her service was in Southern California. And, um, I, I flew down to go to the funeral and my sister picked me up from the airport and I'm giving her directions to the service and I'm like, and take a ride on Crenshaw. And, she, and I looked at Natasha, I was like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and like we get to this little church on Crenshaw and, and it was very much like this moment for me of like, this could have been your future. And, and you know, she, her parents were a little different than my parents and she ended up in a lot of the same environment that we grew up in except mm-hmm. for doing the same thing so um when she passed away she was still stripping she was 20 years old and I looked around and like everyone in that room was a pimp a player a hustler or a prostitute wow. <laughs> and I was like Ugh. and I, I had to leave the room because I was just like damn like my upbringing could have been vastly different if mm-hmm. I hadn't taken a couple different turns but that's definitely the way we grew up especially at that time in the 90s like it was 
you know, my my mom did not like we listened to Second to None and E40. Mm-hmm. And wow. <laughs> there was no no there was nothing was ever edited for our. <laughs> well, it's uh, our age. I think that it's, you know, like a lot of kids who were sheltered. They, you know, they, they like kind of idolize these uh, some of these situations that people grew up in these harder situations, the pimps and players and shit like that. And it's crazy because people who are actually living in those situations know that those aren't healthy situations. And that, um, I just, I just think it's very interesting how in this country, like that kind of stuff is put on like a pedestal. Um, and then same with like, um, like drama and like, like that's just like such a, I guess that's probably everywhere, but it's just like, that is such an, like an important thing. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's like things, people are bored and that's what it is. And it's just any kind of drama or I, no, something that can be, you know, no, someone asked me, they're like, you know, your mom's not on drugs or anything. And I'm like, no, you know, she smokes weed. That's it. They're like, but her life is so crazy. And I'm like, yeah, she's addicted to the, she's addicted to the drama. She's addicted totally to the lifestyle. And the, yeah. if you like that lifestyle, it is, it's fast and fun and also heartbreaking. Like I wouldn't God, want, no, man. I wouldn't want to live looking over my shoulder all the time. No. Like I wouldn't, you know, it was hard enough to grow up in a house where we were thoughtful of like, oh shit, that car has been parked out of the outside for a while. Like you what know? is that? Who what is, is that? that? Who yeah. is that? You know, before medical days when we were younger, um, when we got older though, my mom had, we had one of those split level homes. And okay. so she turned the whole like basement that's usually a rec room into a grow room. Mm. And so <laughs> very smart. <laughs> and my mom's a little lady. So my uncle like rigged all of her watering systems and all of her plants were on rollers so that she could access it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was. And then she actually had there. There was a moment where I was like, I don't think this is a good idea, Terry, because she put up two greenhouses in her backyard in the middle of Hilliard, like right off where you could see where you could see and she's like oh i put a camper out there we'll sleep in it it'll be fine (laughs) okay and so and so she didn't hide any of this stuff from you when you were a kid Mm -mm. like even when you were 10 no no wow so that's so cool nothing was my family always and you know they always said you know um they say it don't tell anyone what happens in our home mm-hmm. and you know some people think it's wrong but we don't and i'm like okay i was going to ask about that <laughs> conversation specifically about how like she would tell you like what she would tell you cuz obviously you're going to public school right so you're not just like oh yeah we grow weed at my house no 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 we just don't talk about what happens at home yeah. like it was pretty great she was into really our yeah strict about that psyche that we never talk and i do have a friend who told on their parents and they got busted wow so that <laughs> it did happen like bro like, what did really you just do who, like damn like who, but, you know you get inundated with dare and and you're like oh shit my parents are drug dealers right and they say but I had a different fan. My dad's from Chicago, so, and you know, he's definitely my dad is a little different than my mom. They broke up when I was fairly young, um, but he was always like, you know, the government doesn't always know what's best for us. So he definitely prefaced it in a way that it was like a social thing, and yeah. that, you know, the government's not always right. And, and not like, these people that are going to say stuff aren't, yeah, aren't always right. Yeah. And so that that made sense to me. So it's like, oh no, I don't, I won't tell. <laughs> And then, so how did that kind of affect you in, in how you looked at marijuana? Like, obviously, you, you didn't look at it as this, this horrible thing, but you knew that it was, like, illegal. That was, I think, for me, it was all, I didn't know it was or bad. Like, I guess I'm thinking, like, when you get older, like, when you were kind of growing into, like, your 18, 19, 20, 16, 21. Yeah, 16, 17 got weird, too, because if, 
you know, other kids, their families aren't okay with it. So it's like, oh, okay, like you can't just smoke weed in your room. And you can be like the bad family <laughs> yeah. or like the bad, like, oh, she's a bad kid. Well, like, I grew up in Hilliard, so everybody loved us because we sold weed. So that's so. true. Okay, that's true. Because it was like, like kids like. No, we were. We, that's was, awesome. You were like all. the like, good family. I was, we were the good family. We were trying to chill. My grandma cooked for everyone. My mom was, she always made food. So, and she sold weed and she sold weed to my friends. And they sold weed back. So what's interesting is Hillier, there's Sounds like amazing. six of us that I know personally and all of our parents grew too. So then we would sell it to each other from our parents. Or I had one friend where we would, he would have, or she would have um, her other friend buy it from her dad so she could sell it because he wouldn't sell it to her directly. <laughs> wow. <laughs> See, it was like a lot, there was a lot of hiding where I come from my mom hiding it sneaking around and like i never knew i never knew my whole life i never knew my mom smoked weed and i smoked weed and she disciplined me for it and yelled at me for it and then i found out you smoke weed too like actively like well, it was such a weird i think my grandma tried like my grandma really was like but we were straight a students so there wasn't was, an issue yeah like even though we smoked weed we were really good kids so, so when did you start smoking weed i started smoking weed when i was 13 and I'll, i remember the first time it was at my friend ebony's house and her older brother was home for from jail because he was in and out of juvenile most of our friendship so he came home and there was weed and he was like okay i'll let you i'll smoke it with you and you can only pass one time and so we just got super baked on your first try on first your first try time. and we ate homemade hamburgers and it was it the was best great. And that's, that's, i fell in love with weed that's a great since. first experience <laughs> and you know a lot of people say they didn't get high like when they first oh smoked. no i was fucking baked and i was i was not scared i was quite happy about it i was like this yeah what was going through your head at that time because you you knew about it you knew that people in your family did it and you were just so it was just kind of like oh shit this is my time like i'm gonna i was like let me try it and you know alcohol and other drugs weren't the same for me like i didn't like drinking when i tried that i was like oh no this is definitely not fun Mm -hmm. i didn't like the out of control feeling but i also think you know i did grow up in a very different environment and so I was a little bit of an anxious human anyway, so mm-hmm. it definitely mellowed me out a little bit, which is probably good for everybody. But <laughs> So you get that high sativa, then you're just fucking tripping out. Yeah, Shit. I could do homework, oh, and then I could oh. relax. Like, And then I told my mom, too. I was like, yeah, I smoked weed with Ebony, and she was like, I knew it was going to happen eventually. And um, not, even, not even tripping about it. No, and I tried to find you a picture. There's actually a picture of me in ninth grade and – I have all of my little sister's friends like in this little circle around me and I have a pop can. Really? <laughs> and I'm getting all of them high for the first time. Yeah, so if you can find that picture, we'll <laughs> definitely fucking put that up just so everybody can see that. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I got my sister, all my sister. I got everybody high for that. I was always getting people high. Like I thought everybody should smoke weed. I definitely became the my only drug of choice by then and I think weed's great. Like it helped me get through college. It helped me focus. And my sister, who's an attorney, will tell you that she passed the California bar the first time high. And she was only wow. 20, 24. It's, it's crazy <laughs> that big misconception about weed and people not being able to function on it and people being getting, you know, oh, people are fucking lazy. They don't do shit. And it's so crazy the amount that people can achieve high. Well, I think that's because for so long you only saw one stereotype of a stoner. And there is like, 
you know, I, which I got way more exposure to when I was working at Bodhi High. Like, there's this, like, heady culture. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, I wasn't, you know, yeah, I'm a festival kid, and yeah, I did this stuff, but as far as really being entrenched in heady culture, that mm-hmm. really, I didn't have to go there to get weed. Yeah. I was accessing weed from the old hippies, so I didn't, it was just a different experience for me, smoking. And I think isolating, too, because I didn't hang out with anyone who didn't smoke weed. So it was just a normal thing. It wasn't, it was kind of already ingrained in the culture that you were growing up in. You didn't have to go to this other, um, this other thing. So it's, yeah, so like all, most of my friends could smoke weed in their bedrooms. So how, when did you start working for Bodhi High? When, when did that happen? Oh, so in um, 2015, I left Empire Health Foundation, which Empire Health Foundation is the largest philanthropic organization in Eastern Washington. Um, when the, de- the sale of Deaconess happened from a nonprofit hospital to a private hospital, um, this entity received the endowment. And so um, I was working there and I was really kind of just, I was kind of over just kind of sitting on the sidelines, like just being a learner. Mm -hmm. So I think when you're in those positions, um, my boss would always be like, oh, Lucretia's railing against the privilege of philanthropy again. Because it was really hard for me, like to sit in these spaces of like meals at the Spokane Club Mm -hmm. and just talking to people about poverty. And especially talking to people who don't really understand poverty. Mm -hmm. Also not understanding that not everybody wants to engage in your system. Mm -hmm. Like there's tons of people who want to be ghetto fabulous all their life and never engage in this weird system that we've created and they do it just fine yeah and they live a happy healthy successful life in their own space and so um just kind of really tired of that and so in 2015 i took over my mom's medical i took over at the um, eastern washington cannabis market um took over her garden grow me and my um, little brother basically started running the shop uh bodie high at that time had just we kind of ran into her at the same into each other at the same time. So they set up a little they had their own little kiosk. They were kind of like little booths. So their booth was right across. And we were the first girls in the market. So I was one of the first ladies. There was one other lady there before I came. Mm-hmm. Um, and but we were running booths. And so they also brought in um, Ashley and she was a, another chick. So you know stoner chicks we tend to bond pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that's kind of how it started. Um, I really liked the their stickers like mm-hmm. they came in very branded mm-hmm. um i at that time had put in with my group we put in for a retail license um and then i had met sam from conscious cannabis or from Bodhi high at the time mm-hmm. and they were just re- getting ready to get their rec license on the producer processor side and so um i asked sam uh, sam kind of we started chatting and he was telling me of some of his organizational challenges specifically just process procedure getting the right people in the right places and i said i think i can help you <laughs> um i was also doing consulting work at that time too in addition to running um running the booth so um i started just doing consulting work for Bodhi high doing their strategic planning helping them really identify their mission statement getting and when did they when did they start they started in 2016 2016 so in 2015 we kind of started they got their license in 2016. Mm -hmm. um i helped kind of through their formation process through their license and then i kind of went my own way about six months in there having their license, I got a phone call from Sam, who's the founder and owner of Bodhi High Conscious Cannabis, is the producer processor license. And he's like, can you come back? We're just, you know, really struggling with kind of the internal operations. And so I was like, yeah, I'll come do another consulting contract. And so I set up another consulting contract for him. And pretty soon I had a desk. 
And that was in like the spring and by October I took a position. Um, and then I was offered ownership in the brand lines. And so I have a small percentage of ownership in uh, Bodhi High, Honey Tree, and Bodhi Elements. Um, yeah, cause, so obviously Bodhi High does m more than one thing. Um, right. So, and I could give you the rent. So the way I see producer processors is they're just manufacturing entities. It doesn't matter what brand comes out of that manufacturing entity. Just like, you know, Suave Conditioner is probably made in the same manufacturing place that Paul Mitchell is made. Um, it just has a different formulation, mm. has different packaging. It's different just brand. manufactured distributed. And that's why I love Eastern Washington for cannabis. I do believe that as federal regulations change, that this will become more so than I think Southern California an epicenter for the production and processing of cannabis. Why, and, why do you say that? Um, because e people don't realize that Eastern Washington, specifically Spokane, is an inland port. And um, Eastern, specifically here, we have land and we have water. Okay, and yeah. have it fairly reasonable. So when you're thinking about farming and manufacturing, we're specifically set up to and do so. And in freaking Southern California, obvious reasons, you know, it's a little bit different climate down there. It, it is. And I do think we have it. And I, there is a huge history of growing in Eastern Washington. I think that they've glamorized Humboldt County so much mm -hmm. that they forgot that there's a strong history of growers in Eastern Washington. And I'm not familiar at all. Um, with a lot of that culture as far as um, the producers, uh -huh. which is something that I want to get more familiar with, which is one reason I wanted to have you on, too, because I know that you, you're very familiar with a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so like Bodie High, they do. Um, God, because I, I know Joey and Joey used to work there. Uh huh. I love Joey. <laughs> yeah. He, he, nothing but good things to say. He's uh, a good human. <laughs> Yeah, he's uh he's awesome, and he really um, sold me on Bodie High. Um, actually, by the way, this is some Sub X. Mm. Thank you to our friends from Cinder for this uh, delicious Sub X. It's uh, the Whip, is what we're smoking on right here. It's very tasty. It is tasty. I busted it out the jar, and it was just fresh. I was like, <laughs> Ooh. Um, yeah, it was so good. Something about that seal just keeps it nice. And oh, I love the seals. You finally get a, I think that's, especially in the beginning of Wreck, is what you missed is like just that little bit of sticky. Like mm -hmm. for a while, everything was just so dry. And I, you know, coming from the producer processor side, I get it. Like one ounce of mold and you're basically just, <clears throat> you have to send all of your. You'd rather it be a little more dry than. Yeah, it, it definitely could put you in a financial bind if you get a bunch of moldy weed. But I think they're finally kind of worked out how to kind of keep that freshness and still get that little bit of sticky from the, from well, the bud. I think, I think definitely having like the, uh, like having that, that seal on the top, th this is a really good seal. And I think some, some people or some producers even go as far to, you know, they, they do like a sticker. So they, they like stick the lid down and they have the seal. And then some of them, uh, just have the sticker, no seal. Right. Um, and then anybody who, anybody who puts it in like a plastic, so like a lot of times you'll see grams and stuff like that in like the, just like the plastic bag. And it seems that those will dry out faster. And I don't know. The Mylar bags. Oh God. It's just, uh, something about the jars definitely makes, you know, definitely keeps it fresher longer. Agreed. And uh, like from a consumer standpoint, you know, you in Washington, you don't get to smell it. You don't get to feel it. You don't get to, it's kind of just, you know, when you're paying 45 or in this case for like <laughs> sub X, like $48 an eighth. 
um, you know, you want to know that you're going to get, you know, you can't take it back. You can't just be like, oh, this is too dry. I don't want the, can I get another one? That's what was nice market. And I think I heard this recently called it deli style. So in the market days, it was deli style. So I would have just jars and I would have tongs or chopsticks that I would pull and way out right in front of the customer. So that's how it is in like Oregon, I think. Yeah, it's still right? like that in Oregon. Yeah, they'll just bust open a jar and they had like clones that they could sell you. I was like, what? Like, yeah, $20, pick up a clone. I'm like, wow. <coughs> and I think that that is, uh, you know, obviously totally respect Washington's laws and all that stuff. But um, I really am passionate about people being able to just grow weed. It's a fucking plant that grows from the ground. It's silly to tell people that they can buy it, but they can't grow it, like grow it for their own consumption. I agree. I mean, you're still going to get really great growers out there that you're going to seek out and want to get cannabis from. Yes. But yeah, you should be able to grow it in your own backyard. You should be able to just have fun and like it can just be like a fun thing where you just like want to grow some weed, you enjoy weed, so you want to grow it and see how good you can do it, try to get better at it. And Yeah, just like those backyard brewers, I'm sure they're still buying beer even if they're brewing their own. Of course. Like and it and doesn't you just, stop that. You know, you're, you're, and you know you're, it's not going to be too good. You know, if I grow weed the first, you know, 10 times, I'm going to be like, oh, shit. And who, I mean, personally, I think I'm trying, I don't want to grow fucking weed i don't want to trim it i don't want to grow it it's i don't a, want it in my it's house. a whole thing huh? it is so like in my family you would get my mom would be like oh i'm having dinner come over well you would show up and there's pounds of weed and you know shears and basically you're you're cutting for your food so <laughs> and i hate trimming like if i never trim again it would be too soon. so i've never trimmed before but i heard that it's a it's lot gross. of it's a lot of work <laughs> it and is a lot of work it's hard work you just get I, I when people come into the store they'll come in and just all sticky and just shit all over them and stuff like that well, it's like damn it's a very you know it's a high complex terpene plant like you get that on your skin after a while i know for me even walking through the gardens like i break out in rashes really yeah and it's one of those things like the more you're exposed to cannabis the more likely you are to get an irritant or a rash from it i figured it'd be like the other way no it's not like the more you're exposed you'd be <laughs> you like less no yeah you would be like immune to no it, it's it's an itchy plant <laughs> and it, it, it's kind of i don't know it's 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 crazy that, that people i feel like a lot of people don't want to understand it like especially in like some of these older generations like my dad's generation are people that are in that like 50 to 60 you know what i mean are people that are more like conservative and, and it's just this like not wanting to be educated is such a fucking conundrum to me you know i think it's the school systems too like they don't teach us you don't look you don't get taught to think until college and that's why i, th I think it's so baffling about you know i don't think that traditional university systems are for everybody but i think what you get at a university level is you're taught to figure it the fuck out like you're taught to look at a a philosophy or a thought and learn how to dissect it really understand you know where is this information coming from who paid for the information who did the research what did the research entail is this qualifiable is mm -hmm. it is it real is it so to really validated? use your brain to, to yeah. uncover these things right and, and that when high school was just like here's some information digest this information Re this remember is, it remember and write it, it down remember and, it and write and it and then down. college is more discover hey you know you need to do your own work which is the kind of stuff that really prepares you for life and then right. there's probably an alarming amount of people that never make it never make it there right so they all they have is just the they just have the the listen to what i say remember stuff you know and 
I don't know. It just it's just crazy because you have all these other things. The, the thing. So whenever I have a political conversation with anybody, I'm always just I use weed as like the baseline because it's like I'm like and people are like, what do you care about? You know, you just care about weed so much. And I'm just it's just just the easiest thing for me to go off of. Like if you can't get on something that's just common sense, then we're not gonna be able to have a conversation, you know. And so that's I, a good test. <laughs> it's a good test because it's just you have pills, you have cigarettes you have alcohol you have all these other things so it's like if you're not you know the same things you're saying about weed if you're not saying those same things about those things as well and criticizing those things as well um i think that a lot of people went along the assumption that if something's legal it's good for you and if it's illegal it's bad for you which is fucking not the case which is insane Mm -hmm. roundup i love the conversation about round okay so Roundup, we know, will kill you. It's awful. It's what causes a lot of problems for growers here in eastern Washington because our soil is contaminated. Um, It was illegal to manufacture it in the United States, but it was not illegal to sell it back to the United States. So then Roundup became produced in Mexico and then was just sold back to the U.S. What the now, Roundup has some really great qualities because in terms of malaria, it did wipe out mosquitoes really well and got rid of malaria and saved tons of lives. But it also did not need to necessarily be used on all plant material. Wow. That's, then that's kind of a fine line, too. But it really fucks people up. It does. Is, is like, that's the, that's the thing. But, and that's, I think, why people don't, like, if it's legal, it's good, like that. Or if the Bible says it's okay, like I don't think they really dissect enough why and when and how this information came to be. Cigarettes is the number one best example you can use because people are literally just smoking because they enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Whether it's good for you or bad for you, you're saying I'm a free person and I get to make this choice to enjoy this no matter how it smells, no matter how it affects me, I'm making this choice. But then when it's cannabis, it's like, it's so different and so that's, so that's the thing it's just it's just so crazy and then it's all it's scheduled to oh. you know what i mean it's this bit it's just like on the same level as, <laughs> as like heroin. it's it's a, it's above mdma <laughs> you know what i mean and which is it's just it's it's just a plant that just grows from the ground and it's people have said it a million times people have heard every argument they've seen the comedians talk about it it's the, everything and still just ah, fucking lazy potheads. Which I would, I'm incre- I've been busy my whole life. Like I don't think I've ever not been busy. So I don't. In fact, getting high and doing things is my favorite thing to do. And yeah, <laughs> I I've never liked just to get high and stay home. I'm always like, and I'll, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna chill and smoke, and then I'll smoke, and then I'll just be motivated to do something. Yeah. I so mean- it, it literally does the opposite <laughs> effect to me than just wanting to just be lazy and do nothing. And I do have a busy mind. Like I think that under certain circumstances, people might've put me on different medication, but I think, you know, to go to college and be focused and work full time and do all of those things and do them well, I think we definitely helped. It did not hinder me. I think it makes just it like literally it just makes things better. It just makes what you're already doing better. So if you're studying, it's better. you can make it better, you know, sure. You can get distracted (laughs) if you fucking didn't want to do your schoolwork in the first place and you're smoking weed and now you're just 
doing something else that you would rather be doing. And really what it is, is it's hard for you to learn things that you're not genuinely interested in. Yeah. My grades will always reflect that. I've always, Mm -hmm. even in college, I was like, if there's a class that I really thought was bullshit, I think I took the psychology of happiness at one point and I was like, I hate this class. So, and he kept using us as research, which I felt like I was forced into a research situation and that made me so Even what was what was angry. it like like what so every quarter we would have to or every month or two weeks or something he would make us fill out this like 52 page questionnaire about our level of happiness and experience in our lives so that he could use it for his research and if we hmm. didn't do it we got strapped with like this like 52 page paper we had to write wow so it was either participate in his Ooh. study or write the fucking paper and i was 52 like, page <laughs> papers those are that's that's college shit right i there. might be exaggerating a little bit but it but was like still, something like, ridiculous like i'm not gonna write an extra paper no you're like i'll just do this I'll you, just let you research me research i didn't want to participate at that time god so i mean college is really i think an important thing for a lot of people I didn't, and i did i didn't go to college at all i learned a trade that i don't use so it's like but I, I just think that it's it is good for kids to go i think that you know obviously getting straddled with crazy amounts of debt for yeah. the rest of your life and you know that that kind of stuff is alarming hopefully some somebody will take care of that and, and help that that would be great i really appreciate but that. i think that college is so important that um you know when you're in that stage of your life it's just you need to be fed information and you need to you're kind of in a place where you're choosing what you're going to be and like what path and before you know it you're going to be on a path and and that's your path now and you know when we were kids we were you know it was always like what do you want to be when you grow up and it was such a weird question when you're a kid because it's (laughs) never going to be what you're going to really be because you're not really finding yourself at that time. You're just like playing and like, and then you get into these like crucial years, like 17, 18, you're starting to just do, I'm going to do what the (laughs) fuck I want to do. No, what? Like, and you're just like getting passionate about things. And I just think it's like a crucial time for, for kids to really get to know yeah I had a professor say that college isn't what you learn it's what you learn about yourself mm-hmm. and I was like yeah it definitely it teaches you how to like just juggle life mm-hmm. like it gives you an opportunity to practice that in a safe space but then you know there's other theorists that believe that you should go off and like not do anything for a while and just I've be heard a that human. yeah we should just like go through like a, a point in time where you just travel yeah, and you're just you like just not and I do I think I think young people should just fuck off for a while well i think there's a lot of things there's like all these balances because i even think that like in the military there's like good things in just in like instilling some discipline and traveling around but and then in a lot of instances you know there's like all the other stuff that's super fucked up that you know people have to deal with for the rest of their lives and stuff so it's like i don't know there's like these balances of like needing to be to like figure things out for yourself but then like having that discipline instilled in you to where you know what not to do and and how to be successful you at least have like the fundamental yeah like i think like every 18 year old should have like their power shut off like that should be like Like, oh fuck like yeah like every every young person should just have that moment of like oh shit that's how i learned (laughs) i think that's how most people like my my parents were just like listen bro I don't know what you want us to do. We're not helping you, you know, and I just had to figure it out. And you just kind of, you know, you just hope you don't burn too much time. 
you know, I'm, o- I'm always worried about time. I think that's one thing I, I, I stress myself out too much because I'm always worried about time and I'm always worried thinking I don't have enough time. And, um, I, I, I like watch stuff that Gary V says, uh, I love Gary and he's just always like telling people they got plenty of time. You like, do. I, yeah. I say, and maybe cause I'm at that age too. Like I feel like I, I think there is a time where you get to like feel like it's intense, but in the big scope of it, you have plenty of it. It's just, <laughs> you, you just feel like there's like land you're, you're supposed to hit like like landmark okay by this age i'm supposed to be here and if i'm not here yet then oh man you know what am <laughs> i doing and uh see that's another thing is that i feel like a lot of people a lot of us i'll just say a lot of us we kind of think that people are at the same place in their lives that we are in our lives and everybody out here is in a completely different place mentally physically different families different you know, obstacles and things going on that we don't understand. And that's where that human psychology piece comes in and people being able to understand people and being able to, to put themselves in other people's shoes and say, Oh, you know, well this person, fuck dude, like they're, you know, their parents died or this happened or that happened. There's reasons for this stuff. This person didn't just wake up one day and just be like, I'm not, you know, I'm just going to fucking not do anything or I'm just going to, you know, especially when you see somebody that's being hostile or somebody that's very angry, I'm always thinking that's, you know, that's stemming from something else. This isn't personal. No, I think everybody, well, and I've gotten really, I almost go to this to a fault of like, if someone's being weird, I just assume it's them, not me. Even, and I think that's really hard in professional situations too, because people immediately are like, oh my God, they didn't look at me or talk to me. They must be mad at me. Um, I'm in a, because I don't make any assumptions about anybody I work with. So I have, and I've done this, it took me a while to get here, but I take the assumption that anybody's, if somebody's acting funny, that's them. It's not me. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> which sometimes it is me. It has been me. I mean, sometimes it is to see yourself. Like I'm not going to waste my time obsessing over it. And, and also about time. Like you have to have the experience. Like I think for two, like, if you don't live through the experience, you can't have the foresight for the experience. Okay. So I think a lot of times, like, you want to be somewhere way out here. Like, you want to reach these goals, but until you have those experiences to reach that goal, you have nothing to offer. Wow. So you have to have the experience. That's so, that's, wow. I mean, I I look back on like my early life, like, you know, why did I have to be born into that family with those experiences? Mm -hmm. But I had to, like, it made me who I am. Mm -hmm. And if I hadn't, and now I, for me, because, you know, I, I get paid to think. So my job is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times I'm not doing something. I'm bringing people together to figure something out and then coming up with a response. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, hi now. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> yes, beautiful. So the um, weed is working. <laughs> so when you're when you're paid to think and have experiences, I can't give people foresight on that experience unless I've had it. 
Okay. And so yeah. like being growing up in a really turbulent experience and understanding what poverty is and growing up in Hilliard gives me this piece of experience and understanding humanity that I wouldn't have unless I had that experience, which now I get paid very much to figure people out, decide what good position, what position might be good for them and coach them into better positions. And unless I've had all these experiences, you wouldn't I wouldn't be able, to, be do able to do that. Wow. That's that. I mean, and for most people, there is so a level sense. of experience that they have have to have to prepare them for that because until you're in it like you don't get to practice the skills to be to master something because I you know I'm a bit of a hippie too like I believe the universe will continue to bring you the same experience until you learn how to handle it differently and so that's all true of those, I think that's so very you're true always given a chance to practice and you know I you know I when I'm at work, I talk a lot about like, I, my favorite book is Fierce Conversations. And it really teaches you how to have really hard conversations with people and do it in the moment when it could, could be super uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So that's a book, Fierce Conversations. Yeah, so that's, that's and mm. you know, being able to like have those conversations. It's really easy to talk about having a hard conversation but when it presents itself and you're in the moment mm -hmm. and you're feeling the feelings, it's really hard to have a thoughtful, respectful, and guided conversation. And people are... And I so think, until you get practice and build your muscle, you're going to continue to fuck up. And like you said, it's going to keep bringing you opportunities right. is, is if you're struggling with that thing. It's going to keep right. coming back, um, which is crazy that how that works. But that's that seems to be the case. Yes. And, I, and I find myself in situations where you, a lot of times you have to tell people just like what they don't want to hear or you have to just, you know, and you have yeah. to have hard conversations with people. Um, and a lot of people have different egos and different things and, and people don't want you to tell them what to do or what to, <laughs> it, it's, it, there's, there's a lot trying to find the right ways. So it sounds like this book is, oh, yeah. I'm already interested. I'm really very interested. Um, I, you know, I read a lot of books and I apply them a lot to the roles that I've had. Many of the roles I've had are in some type of management position or overseeing people and processes and systems. And you have to, if you're going to do that, you have to learn how to have really hard conversations. And so um, it really, and it's honestly, it's a book, but it's a theory that's used in all conversation theory. It's just state the problem, state why it's important to you you know, and ask for clarity and then come to a conclusion. So it's, it's like a little more a, complicated than that, but it's not like, it's just, that's like, it's, you're just trying to find a, the most respectful way because communication, I feel like people then don't communicate because it, it, people are afraid of the hard conversation. Well, And they're making up a story in their head. Uh, Brene Brown, she's another like famous CEO lady who I like to listen to. And one of the things she said that I really stuck with me is like, instead of like, just, you know, our brain is built to make connections and make a story. Like it wants to figure it out and have a reason for something. Mm -hmm. And so like we mentioned earlier, like there's somebody being weird in the meeting. You're like, oh my God, it's me. And so Brene Brown says, you know, I do this thing where I'm like, hey, I'm making up the story in my head. And the story in my head is that you're really upset with me. And it's like, it's okay just to say like, hey, are you upset with me? But I think it's more important that if you're upset with someone that you bring it to them. Yeah. Because you can't just make assumptions and you're not going to be able to something else you should never do. <laughs> you should just get clarity. And then, like, hey, yes, are you the clarity upset with me? <laughs> because a lot of people will like not somebody will feel some type of way, not express it. Somebody else will assume something. And now you have just a whole 
clusterfuck of things that aren't even real that, right. that are now all in people's minds and now people are and then when people this is how the drama starts when people go and instead of communicating with that person now they go and they communicate it with other people yeah and they get all their friends involved i mean and it's then fun, every and then everybody knows it's and, not effective and well yeah you don't know oh have i done something wrong you know a lot of times you know maybe we're just not self-aware maybe we just don't you know sometimes we're just we're all human and we're just you know unaware that we're you know if, if i'm affecting somebody negatively or if i said something or if you think you know if, if my actions have you know led you to believe something and it, it's just i feel like we definitely need to push like more of a culture where we just hey what's up like what's going on and we just communicate and we know it. ourselves better like i i think that gets to i think if you know yourself well enough you stop making assumptions about what's going on with other people like, I do like that, like, what you think about me is really none of my business. Unless yeah. you make it my business. <laughs> and you tell me. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. So what did you, uh, when you were a little kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, what did I want to be? Um, I think I, I knew I wanted to be a boss. So that was you're like, oh, wow. You're like, <laughs> I always knew I wanted to be a boss. I don't think I... Um, I <laughs> might have dope. wanted to be a lawyer at one point. Um, oh, a lawyer. Yeah, my sister's a lawyer. They're crazy. So like sounded fun on like the outside. You're like, but, oh, I'll be yeah. a lawyer. Yeah, and they're like, oh, shit. Maybe I think politics was always uh, somewhere in there too. So that was another area. So that's what I, I just wanted Damn, to be. Damn, no, those are some serious be, <laughs> ass jobs for a kid to want to have. I was a very serious kid. <laughs> like I was like, I want to be a firefighter. I did not get fun until I did acid. Like and it, then it changed. It, it did take acid to make me a fun person. Really? And I think that's why I think weed was so important to me because I was like, I think when you grow up in an environment where you can't control things, you create opportunities to control things. So, you know, me being really good in school, like it was my own way of like coping with having a tumultuous childhood. It was like there I could bring order there. I could, you know, create this really safe place where mm -hmm. I got to kind of understand and and can interpret everything that's happening around me so that's so cool so that's, yeah so yeah. as a little person i was very like i like i like to be in charge and i like things a certain way and so i would definitely create opportunities i think we self-select for our careers too like, like i'm gonna be a boss it's gonna happen <laughs> fuck this i'm gonna just just suck it up right now and i'm gonna be running shit which i do i like I like being the boss. It's it's not something, but it's a lot of responsibility. I think to be a good boss, and it took me a long time to learn how to be a good boss. Mm -hmm. um, and it is something you learn. You don't just one day get to be like, oh, these people just have to listen to me because it's not. I don't want people just to listen to me. I want them to put. And I've gotten the luxury of to work in areas I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be passionate about kids and creating environments for them to be successful or you can be passionate about pot because it's an amazing and it's it's a social justice issue too mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. there's yes. many people who went to jail for pot who mm -hmm. should not be in jail no and so um yeah from a young age i just really i liked having a say and understanding of what's going on around me and i you know obviously it served me well so. well yeah i was just gonna say I'm just, <laughs> you're obviously doing great so that works and uh the kids that you work with you know, and that you come across and that you teach and stuff like that is just they're they're in good hands. So and be and I think that's what managers should be doing. Like it's an opportunity to teach. Like the people you manage, the people that 
you surround yourself with at work. It's just, you know, you spend so much of your time there. Why not mm-hmm. make that another place where you learn and grow? And mm-hmm. that's what I got. And I think that's, you know, I haven't seen that as much in other places, but coming from philanthropy and nonprofit work, you know, I had professional coaches and I had learning opportunities to make me a better professional. And Mm -hmm. it made me love my job more and gave me more resources to be successful at what I was doing. And I just feel like all working environments, regardless of what level it's at, should create that. Because I think we as humans want to learn Mm -hmm. and understand and have a deeper connection with what we do. And, um, People should leave their jobs in a better place than what they came in. And when people want to learn, they just, it's just all about back to that same conversation of just people want, they all learn their own ways. Right. And if it's something that you're not interested in, you're probably going to have a tough time learning it, you know? Which, I mean, in this industry, especially, I'm with a lot of non-traditional learners. Like most of the people that are on my team are non-traditional learners. And so for me, it's been really fun to try to figure out ways to utilize corporate tools and strategies Mm -hmm. with different learners. Like, you know, people are very, you know, there's audible learners who need to hear things and need to have the hot conversation. And Mm -hmm. especially people who aren't traditional and book smart, who can read and remember, Mm -hmm. you know, they have to have those opportunities. And so creating learning opportunities that meet all of those objectives, especially adult learning is, I think it's fun. And that most, I think companies would make so much more money if they put 1% into creating processes and training modules that engaged their staff at any any company and ones that do it in a consistent way um at boys and girls club we shut down once a month just to have staff trainings just to give the staff i mean that's always possible but i think that creating learning opportunities and expecting more from your staff get you better results. Yeah, I think so too. It and it you more revenue. It creates and it's more not a place. It makes pa- more passionate people. You and then know? they're finding solutions for you. Like your staff will find solutions. They will start looking at their roles differently and want to find ways to be more efficient and more successful. Man, just so much knowledge, so much, <laughs> so much wisdom. It's a beautiful thing. And it, it's, it's so true because people, uh, Sometimes we just need a little bit of direction, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, we need good leaders and good bosses and uh, little girls that strive to be bosses and then become bosses. That's fucking yeah, badass. I, I think, you know, I, I always liked being called bossy. I never thought that it was a negative thing. So. <laughs> some people, yeah, for some, some people, boss is like a bad word. but And it was. There are, like, I don't like telling people what to do. And mm-hmm. when I was first given management roles, I really sucked at it. I hated it. I thought it was... I hated everything because you about wanted it. to. You didn't. You didn't want to have to be somebody's. Yeah, like, I didn't yeah. want to be like. You wanted to be like peer with them. I, and just I like, wanted, Hey, let's work together. Yeah, like, I wanted to, to be more of a communal experience, not just. And I wanted to get something out of it too. And I think when you approach management, so I always say, and especially in my business, you know, you manage processes, you coach people. Um, you don't manage people. People manage themselves. Mm-hmm. And the more tools you can give them to manage their self, themselves successful, they'll meet the business goals and objectives that you set and they'll do it better than you can do it by yourself. I think that's a huge first school and stuff like that. That's what kids need more of like to just kind of take more, just get a little bit direction and then just be able to apply themselves and things that they're interested in uh, and move forward. Like that's instead of trying to force 
kid like you know square pegs into round holes and then you know you got people that kids that are just like dipping out like fuck this i'm you know i'm this sucks and mine allowed me to you know i manipulated the system in some ways like being good at school allowed me you know to get out of class when i wanted to get out of trouble if i did something wrong (laughs) you obviously saw that value though i did And, and being able to like well if i get my shit done nobody can tell me shit Right. That's kind of the approach I take. If I get really good grades, if I get this done, then I can do what I want. And that's how, (laughs) when you talk about, uh, oh, do you miss being a kid? And you're like, well, not really. No. Because it's like, (laughs) you can do the same thing as an adult. If you handle your shit and you you take care of it, you can do what you want to do. Although I do think more adults should have childhoods they miss. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because I I do have a childhood I miss too, but I think back to having to ask to do things and to always, you know, having to run it by somebody else and like how cool being an adult is and being able to just like book a vacation and just leave and just just to do anything you want all the time. It's it's pretty awesome. So we got to like reflect on how fucking cool it is to be like a in this sweet spot of life we're in right now. I do. I like being a grown up. I'm not afraid of it. Especially in this phase. Like we're right there. We're like in this nice little pocket of life that's pretty enjoyable and the sun's coming out too it's beautiful it's not as frosty Uh, still frosty (laughs) but but i'm seeing some blue skies out there through the window but yeah so man thank you for coming on seriously this is awesome for having me so um this is usually where i would say like hey like plug your new album but you yeah i don't have an oh but my wife is doing a pop up a pop up Mm -hmm. um she is a vintage clothing curator Mm -hmm. it's called butch house krista krista yeah my my wife's amazing shout out to her (laughs) for uh making this actually happen in the first place because she messaged me and was like hey (laughs) you should have my wife on and then i just did my research and and here we are so without her this wouldn't be possible yeah krista's the best human on the planet i love her um but yeah she has really great 90s fashion you don't have to be um, butch to check it out but she'll be at mood is a feeling at the steam plant on saturday okay for small business saturday so there'll be a lot of there'll be a few other people there so definitely um come and see her or if and me you know you can definitely um my website's lucretia.com um and if you are interested, damn how'd you get that one <laughs> lucretia.com it's my, it's my name oh shit. i know i was super i was really excited wow. i was still there lucretia.com that's pretty fucking easy <laughs> um, you guys can remember that um but if you do find yourself you know needing um support in your business in terms of facilitating meetings or strategic planning or developing um educational tools for your staff and coaching models um I can help out with that too, but definitely come down on Saturday and, and see Krista with Butch House. Awesome. All right. Lucretia Hill, everybody. Thank you. All right. See you guys. Peace. happy to be here i know lots of teachers like they party really hard like i looked around and like everyone in that room was a pimp a player a hustler or a prostitute